Now, our Father and our God, we thank you that you are great and mighty, that when we're in the deadness of our sin, you put a spark in our human heart that we might not only be recipients of general revelation, but specific revelation, the gospel. Lord Jesus, you said no one can come to the Father unless you first draw them. But we also affirm and acknowledge that you've given each and every person a free will that once you open their heart up to the gospel of grace, that they can say yes or no to Christ. We know that everyone here today will make some kind of a decision. And may the decisions that we make be pleasing and keeping and consistent with your word. Now, I know, my Father, that the words I preach fall on deaf ears unless the Spirit of God anoints them. I thank you that he is able to do that, and I ask that he would, that he would fill me and use me for the name of Jesus and for his honor and glory we ask. Amen. This is Friend Day at Community Bible Church, and every so many years... I take our friends through a little booklet entitled, Would You Like to Know God as Your Friend? In fact, as you leave this morning, they won't be there until you leave. There'll be packets of five for you to take. And for our friends online, we make these available. They're actually in 10 languages now, uh, Kosi, Italian, Russian, Ukrainian, uh, Spanish, just a number of different languages. And it's just a simple presentation of the gospel. And to our friends online, we make these available for you at no cost. We ask you to pay the shipping, which is very, very minimal. We'll send 50 booklets to you. We want you to have some skin in the game so they don't just sit on a shelf and be wasted. And I have an assignment for everyone today who knows Christ in a personal life-changing way. I'm going to ask you this week to share this booklet with one person. And you can blame it on me. You can say, my pastor has asked me to share this booklet with one person this week. Would you allow me to share it with you? And really, all you have to do is read it. But I'll share some helpful illustrations today that you don't necessarily have to write down. This will be online usually within two hours after we're finished with the service. You can go back and listen to it. But I want to encourage you this week, especially if you've never personally led someone to faith in Jesus Christ, or you haven't done so in the last few years, it might be that what you're doing is not a clear, cogent presentation of the gospel. It used to be that we could use booklets like the Four Spiritual Laws, which 40 years ago we used to call an Acts 2 presentation of the gospel. There was a certain uh, foundational belief that most Americans have. Now fewer than 20% of Americans can even name the Ten Commandments. And when I meet 18 to 20-year-olds and I ask them about Adam and Eve, many don't even know who they were. So what's critical is what we used to call 40 years ago an Acts 17 presentation of the gospel, where you get the big picture from Genesis to Revelation. And literally, thousands of people have found Christ and have become baptized, confessing believers through this short, simple little presentation of the gospel. So that's where we're headed this morning. Would you like to know God as your friend? It's really an amazing thought to think that God can be your friend. 
that you can know God in a very personal, life-changing way. And so I'm not going to go through every page in this booklet, but on the back of your bulletin, you will see that there's two questions that I want you to uh, ask and answer for yourself. And the first one is this. If you were to place yourself on a scale of zero to 100, zero measuring unsure, uncertain, and 100 measuring absolutely certain, how sure are you if you were to die today right now that you would go to heaven? Where would you put yourself on that scale? Would you say, I'm 25% certain I'd go, 50, 75, 100? A man just told me on Friday night, he said, no one can know. But the Bible says you can know that you have eternal life. Not hope, wonder, or think, but you can know for certain that you have eternal life. Now, I must say also that sometimes people will say they're 100% only to discover they're 100% wrong. I spoke with a a lady yesterday, and I said, well, how certain are you? She said, I'm 100%. I said, why are you 100%? I'm just curious, because many people I speak to don't have that assurance. She said, I don't know. It's just kind of a feeling I have. Well, you know, um, would that cut it? Would that cut it with God? I was sharing with a man up in New England just a week or so ago, and we got into a conversation. I said, hey, by the way, do you go to church at all? He said, no, I'm not much of a churchgoer. And I said, well, can I ask you a question? Scale of zero, I'm 100. Why are you 100? He said, well, you know, I was in heart surgery, and, and I had this vision of my brother who died a few years ago. And my brother said, it's not your time yet. And he said, that's why I know I'm going to heaven. Would that answer cut it? People will give all kinds of answers to this second question. Suppose you were to die today and you stood before God face to face and he said, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say to him? You're face to face with God Almighty. Now, don't forget your answer. I want you to record it out there in the margin of your mind. Why should God let you into heaven? Hold that answer because I want you to take that answer and put it into the mirror of Scripture. If it matches, then embrace it. If it doesn't, then kick it out. Remember, everyone listening to me within the sound of my voice, everything you believe is based on something. You either made it up or you read it in a book, a friend told you, but just believing something doesn't make it true. You can believe with all your heart two plus two equals five, but it doesn't, no matter how sincerely you believe that. So you have a basis for what you believe. The question is, is the basis accurate? Now, I'm not here this morning to prove the Bible, though I have a booklet for any visitor who will ask how to prove the Bible is true. I'll be happy to provide you with a free copy. I don't make any money on it. They're sold on Amazon. How to prove the Bible is true. This is the only book God ever wrote. He didn't write the Quran. He didn't write the Upanishads, the Vedas. He didn't write the Book of Mormon. He didn't inspire any encyclical letter. The only book God ever wrote were these 66 books we call the Holy Bible. Now, I'm going this morning to kind of give you an overview of the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation. When people come to meet the pastor, and this would kind of count as a meet the pastor, this is what I cover. And so if you have someone you're trying to win to Christ and maybe you're not at that point where you've been successful, bring them to a meet the pastor because these are the core values of our church. 
And among other things, the five principles I'm going to share this morning explain how you can be absolutely 100% certain that when you die, you'll go to heaven. Five principles. Principle number one, God created man to have a friendship with himself. The Bible opens with these words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And God takes two chapters to describe his creation. And as you read those two chapters, you discover that at the height of his creation is God makes a man and a woman to be his friend. And so the scripture said, Moses wrote in Genesis 2, then the Lord formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. He also wrote, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. God saw all that he made, and behold, it was very good. So what makes us distinctly different from the animal world is that we're created in God's image. We're not some highly evolved, two-legged animal. We are people. And God breathed into us the breath of life. That's why you never see a cat or a dog in prayer or worship. Only people have that capacity, that desire, because we are a unique creation of God. But being made in the image of God, among other things, means you are a free moral agent. God didn't make you like a robot so that all you could do was obey. He gave you a free will. And so we see that choice spelled out here by Moses in Genesis 2. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day, it's emphatic in Hebrew, for in the very day, that you eat from it, you shall surely die. Now, again, I ask sometimes uh, young Marines, did they eat? And they say, I don't know. And they're not being uh, smart or rude or they just don't know. That's how biblically ignorant our culture is today. Yes, they did eat. Did they die that day? And many will say, well, it doesn't look like they died. Well, God didn't bury them six feet under that day. Yet God cannot lie. He said the day, the very day you eat from it, you will die. They did die that day because there's three kinds of death in the Bible. They died immediately on the inside. They felt estranged from God that day. They felt a sense of shame. They felt a sense of guilt. Why? Because they died spiritually. So God comes into the garden. He says, where are you, Adam? That's not the voice of a detective. God is omniscient. He never asks questions to learn. Every time in Scripture you see God asking a question, it's only to reveal truth. And Adam and Eve had died that day on the inside. They began to die on the outside. They began to age for the first time. And so in one sense, we're all born dying. We're getting older and older, and we're marching towards the grave. And one of these days, our bodies will give out. And if the problem is not solved before you leave this world, you will die eternally, forever and ever, in a place that God wishes none to go. So man rebelled against God, the second point underscores. And so we read in Genesis 3, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now lest he stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever, eat and live forever in a fallen state, Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken, so he drove the man out. So now God in his grace and mercy removed Adam and Eve 
from that eternal tree. He put cherubim, two holy angels at the entrance. It's a duel in Hebrew with a flaming sword of fire so that man could no longer come back into God's presence. Man was separated from God. And so the consequences are great. Um, It's been devastating, sin, suffering, war, poverty, greed, sickness, pain, COVID, you think of it. Why is that in the world? Because sin entered into the world, the Bible teaches. And so from the moment of conception, the scripture affirms we're all little sinners. King David wrote in Psalm 51, indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. And that's really obvious to most of us. You don't have to teach a three-year-old to be selfish. You have to teach that three-year-old to share. You don't have to teach a five-year-old to lie. They figure it out on their own. You have to teach them to tell the truth. Why is that? Because by birth, by nature, by choice, the Scripture teaches we are all sinners. And so the Bible declares from the Psalms quoted in the book of Romans, there is none righteous, not even one. And what Adam did, we've all done. The Scripture says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Many of you may know that in both Hebrew and in Greek, the word for sin was an archery term. If I lived back in the first century and I was aiming at a target and I missed the bullseye, you would shout, Hamatano, you sinned. It meant you missed the mark. And God uses that very picturesque word in both languages to describe our fallen state. God's goal is His perfection, His righteousness, and we've all fallen short. Suppose you've done this many good deeds in your life and I've only done this many. I asked a man a couple days ago, I said, he told me he was 100% sure he was going to heaven. I said, well, uh, Calvin, why should God let you into heaven? He said, well, I'm a very good person. I attend church every week and I've been baptized. And well, suppose Calvin's done this many good deeds, and I hope he's watching this morning. I invited him to, and I've only done this many. You might say, well, Calvin's lived better than the preacher. I think Calvin's good to go. Somebody else might say, well, I'm not so sure about Calvin. Look at Mother Teresa, the Pope, Billy Graham, Dr. King, the most religious person you can find. When compared to the Lord Jesus way up there at the ceiling, falls short, we miss the bullseye. Yet we're going to see this morning that the Bible teaches unless you hit the bullseye, unless you reach the ceiling, so to speak, you'll never enter the kingdom of God. You'll never see the inside of heaven. Yet the Bible says we've already failed, we've sinned. And then the Bible says, for the wages of sin is death. You know what a wage is. Simply said, a wage is what you get for what you do. It's your paycheck, so to speak. The Bible says the, sin, the soul that sins must die. The wages of sin is death. And the death the Bible is referring to is not just physical death, but eternal death. And so the Bible tells us here in 2 Thessalonians that a day is coming when God will be dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel. The word obey is a Greek word to hear under, to submit. Those who do not submit, you could render it as one translation puts it, to the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. So here's the problem illustrated on the next page. On one side, we have God who's holy. On the other side, man who is sinful. And there's this chasm between us and God. Most people have felt the estrangement that sin brings. And they just assume that if you do good works, that if you follow a certain religion, a philosophy of life, a certain moral code, that somehow you can reach God. 
But the Bible teaches that because God is so holy, he can't allow sin or sinful man into his presence. The Bible says your iniquity, your sin has made a separation between you and your God. Isaiah the prophet wrote that. And in the last book of the Bible, God says, I can't allow anything into my heaven that will defile it. Not even the smallest liar, as one paraphrase puts it. One lie is enough to keep you out of the presence of a holy God. I asked a young man this week in the office, just nine years old, and I said to him, why will not good works get you into heaven? He said, because you have to believe in Jesus to be saved. That's the solution. But why won't good works get you into heaven? And there are two reasons the Bible gives in Scripture. Reason number one is good works can never remove the stain of sin. Suppose for the sake of argument from this day forward, in every thought, word, and deed that you did, it would be holy and you never sinned again. Now, that would be impossible, the Bible teaches. Only Christ lived a sinless life from beginning to end. But even if somehow you could, it wouldn't erase the mess that's back here. So good works aren't like this giant eraser that can somehow remove the stain of sin. They can't get rid of the things that you've done wrong, that I've done wrong. But the second reason is for the wages of sin is death. God says our sin deserves death. I was on the phone with our state senator, I think it was just about five years ago this month. And he's a pastor, or was a pastor. And he had, on three occasions, stopped in our South Carolina Senate a bill from ever getting on the floor that would protect the sanctity of human life. I hope you believe that life begins at conception. You say, I don't believe that. Well, remember, everything you believe is based on something. The Bible affirms that life begins at the moment of conception, that that's not just some piece of fetal tissue, that that's a human being. Anyway, I asked him why, and I pleaded with him for nearly 30 minutes. But I just didn't even have ears to hear. He didn't. I said, your own secretary is deceived. She thinks that you're pro-life because I was begging her to let you call me. And she said, no, my, my pastor's pro-life. I said, no, he's not. On three occasions, he was the chair of the committee. He stopped the bill. I said, you're not even honest with your congregation. And it was very sad because a short time later, a young man walked into that church and shot that pastor and eight other people there in Charleston, South Carolina. Now, that young man, Dylan, did a heinous, wicked thing. And under our law, the Bible, the, the, the law says, not man's law, but just God's law as well, that he must die. Well, God says, if you're a sinner, the wages of sin is death. You must die. Now, if Dylan said, well, look, I'll do community service. I see those prisoners out there. It says Beaufort County Jail out there picking up trash on the highway. I'll do what they do. For the rest of my life, the judge would say, oh, no, 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 no. What those guys have done is not worthy of death. They might have hit someone in the face. They might have stolen something at Walmart, but they never did the heinous thing that you did, premeditated murder. God's law says, your sin, my sins, everyone's sin deserves death. And we say, I'll keep the golden rule. I'll be a good dad. I'll be a good husband. I'll, uh, I'll come to church. I'll give money to the poor. All good things, 
but they will never satisfy the justice of God. So good works, plainly according to the Bible, can never get you into heaven because they can never remove the stain of sin and to come into God's presence, you must be righteous. And the Bible says we fall short of that. And the second reason is because good works can never satisfy the penalty of sin, which is death. And that's why twice over in the Proverbs, Solomon writes, there's a way that seems right to a man. But the end thereof is the way of death. It may seem right and logical. You can get into heaven by being good, but you cannot. And so the third point brings us to God's solution. The Bible would say that God's love moved him to rescue us from our sin. 1 John 4 says, and this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son. God took the initiative. God came after us. And so in the most quoted, most memorized verse in the Bible, we read, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him, in God's only begotten son, should not perish, but have eternal life. Now think with me for just a second through this verse. The world in the context is not the trees and the mountains and the oceans, but people. You could put your own name in there. For God so loved Carl Brogy, for God so loved Jesse, for God so loved Calvin, for God so loved Tamika, that he gave his only son, that if you or me or whoever believes, you'll not perish but have. Please notice it doesn't say will have. It's not a future tense. It's a present tense in the Greek New Testament. In fact, here in the next page, Jesus made this statement. Truly, truly, I tell you, the one who believes has this moment, present tense, eternal life. Well, what is eternal life if eternal life is something I can get this moment? Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life, according to the Bible, is a relationship with God. That's why it's something you can have today. Most people think of it as a place. No, this relationship will carry on after this life in heaven if you've received eternal life. But eternal life is knowing the Lord personally. I'm not saying knowing his existence. Now, about 1% of the 7.6 billion people on the earth say they are atheists. They're not. Not according to the Bible. They can say with their lips, but according to the Bible, the fool has said in his heart, there's no God. He knows there's a God. Every man knows there's a God in two ways, through the creation around us, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature, the scripture says, have been clearly revealed through the things he's created. I don't think that this watch with 150 pieces in it just happened to bang together after billions of years to create this ordered working timepiece. No, the created thing points to the creator. So anyone who tells you he's an atheist, he's really not. And the second reason we know he's not according to the Bible is because of conscience. Paul says in Romans 2, pagans, Gentiles who don't even have a Bible show the work of the law written in their hearts and that their conscience either defends them or accuses them. I have a friend who's been a missionary now for 30 years in Papua New Guinea. This church has supported him for that long. And when Wayne went into Papua New Guinea to work with the Arumba people, Uh, they had never heard the name of Jesus. They'd never seen a Bible before. And yet that culture had a certain set of moral standards. They knew it was wrong to kill, to murder. They knew that it was wrong to take your neighbor's goods, to take your neighbor's wife. How did they know that? Because the law of God was written into their hearts such that when your conscience affirms you, it says you're doing what's right. 
When your conscience accuses you, you're doing what's wrong. Who are you pleasing or displeasing? The God who created you. That's what the Scripture affirms. And so all men have a knowledge of God, but that's not the same as knowing God personally. I could tell you I know Donald J. Trump, the President of the United States. I know some of you are saying big deal. <laughs> Listen, I know President Trump. You say you know him? Yes. But if President Trump came through this door this morning, he couldn't call my name out for anything unless he read it on the sign. You say, then you don't really know him. Well, not personally. Well, you see, a lot of people know God the way I know President Trump. They just know facts about him. And if they were raised in the church and maybe even have read the Bible and attended Sunday school, they may know a lot of true and accurate facts about God. But that's not the same as knowing him personally. And that's why Jesus at the end of time can speak to many who claim to know him and he will say to them, I never knew you. Not I once, I never knew you. Depart from me. So think with me for just a moment this morning. If eternal life is something I can have right now, the one who believes has eternal life, how long does eternal life last? Well, it lasts forever. So if I have eternal life and it's forever and ever and ever, if I know I really have it, I can be absolutely 100% certain that when I die, the only thing that changes is the place of this relationship moves from earth into heaven. You say, well, that's fantastic. How do you get it to begin with? You must believe in Jesus. Now, it doesn't say whoever believes about Jesus. Now, America is dramatically changing. We're down to 72% of Americans who now say they are Christians. We live in South Carolina. Approximately 90% of South Carolinians say they are Christians. I could be wrong, but I doubt seriously that if Jesus returned today to judge the living and the dead, that 72%, much less 90% of South Carolina would go to heaven. Yet they say they believe in Jesus. Well, listen to these words that Christ spoke about those who said they believed in him. He warned them, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide in the way, the the road, you could put it, is broad that leads to destruction, to judgment. And many are those who enter by it, for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life and few are those who find it. So we note here, millions and millions of people acknowledge certain facts about Jesus Christ, so they think that makes them a Christian. But the Bible is clear. It's not enough to believe about Christ. James 2.19 says, the demons believe. You have to believe in Christ. Well, what's the difference? How do I know whether I believe about Christ or if I believe in Christ? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. Whoever believes in me has eternal life. How do I know which one I've done? That's what we're going to examine in the last two points. You still with me? All right, let's look at the last two points and we'll be finished. Point number four, the Bible would say Jesus is the only solution to man's broken relationship with God. This first paragraph basically says the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation is about Jesus. For instance, the miraculous birth of the Messiah was foretold by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, a virgin will be with child and and bear a son, and she'll call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel is a Hebrew word that means God with us. The angel Gabriel told Mary how it would happen. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy child shall be called the Son of God. And so the Old Testament is all about Jesus. That's what the Bible affirms. Jesus could say, Moses wrote about me. He could say, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. And so here was this prophet 700 years earlier 
who said a baby is going to be born, and the baby's name will be called Mighty God. And when this baby comes, he'll come through no ordinary means, but extraordinary means. A virgin will conceive, and the angel Gabriel told Mary, the Holy Spirit will overshadow your womb. And he promised that he would take the eternal deity of Christ, the one who had no beginning or end, and he would bring together perfect, sinless humanity. That's why Jesus could say, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. So if God became a man, as the prophets wrote about, would you not expect him to be a perfect man? Of course you would. And so in different places throughout the New Testament, as prophesied in the Old Testament, especially in Psalm 22, Psalm 16, Psalm 68, Isaiah 53, it affirmed that when the Messiah would come, he would be perfect. The writer of the Hebrews made this statement, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. And so Jesus' death is described as substitutionary, much like Isaiah, who said he would be pierced through for our iniquity. Paul wrote, but God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, while we deserve the wages of sin death, Christ died for us. Now, think again your way through this. Direct quote from the Bible, Christ died for sins. So if Christ died for sins, as the prophets wrote about, as the primary function of the Messiah coming, and he had zero sin, then the only way to understand his death is in our place. And that's exactly what he did. He wasn't dying for his sin because he had none. He was dying for your sin. Now, if I wanted to die for your sin, even if I wanted to, I wouldn't be qualified to because I'm a sinner. And I inherited the problem from Richard John Brogy, and he got it from Charles Frank Brogy. And whether you know it or not, everyone listening, whatever country or race or tribe or tongue you are, we're all related because we all go back to our original parents. That's why the Bible teaches in passages like Romans 5, when Adam sinned, we all sinned. And that's why we inherit this fallen sinful nature. But Jesus, without a human father, came to earth just as the prophet had predicted. He became a man. And so as a real human, he could die for a sinner like me. But being more than human, he could die for an infinite number of sinful people. You say, well, how do we really know that he was God? I mean, think about this. Who is Jesus Christ? Now, many people say, well, he was a great religious teacher. I was speaking to a Jewish man recently, and he said, I don't deny that. Even in Israel, he said, it's these Christian organizations that are feeding many poor people in our own nation. He was a good man. He did a lot of good. And think about it, more hospitals, more people have been fed in the name of Christ, educated and so forth, taught to read because of Jesus of Nazareth. So he didn't deny that he was a good moral person. But I said to him, God didn't leave you that opportunity. Listen, Jesus claimed to be God. For Jesus to claim to be God, he left you three alternatives. He was either a liar, and if Jesus was a liar, he was a sinner. And if he was a liar, then he was evil beyond evil. Because as you read the New Testament writers, Jesus on a number of occasions said, because men would believe that he is Lord, they would die for him. They would give everything for him, even their own lives. In the early centuries alone, once a year, there came a time when the Roman government required every Christian to bow down and say, Caesar Curios, Caesar is Lord. 
And the true Christians would not do that. And when they were asked to bow down, they said, Christos, Kurios, Christ is Lord. And because of that, they were bloodied by the lions in the Colosseum. For Jesus to propagate such a lie where millions of people in the first 20 centuries died, you'd have to say he was evil beyond Hitler. Or if he claimed to be God, thought he was God, then, and he wasn't, then he was a madman, he was a nut. Or he was Lord. Listen, he was either a deceiver, deceived, or deity. But you cannot say he was just another great man. Why? Because of the miracles he performed, the prophecies he fulfilled, and one event in particular that the Bible describes as a declaration. It's a Greek word that means an announcement. That is, that he was raised from the dead. Listen to what the Apostle Paul said here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He described the resurrection as a fulfillment of the Scriptures, of prophecy. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. How? According to the Scriptures. The death of Messiah was written in the Old Testament Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised. How? On the third day, according to the Scriptures. Not some general resurrection. But on the third day, just as the Scriptures had predicted, that's a sermon in itself. The types, the illustrations, the feasts, and the direct prophecies that explain that Jesus would be raised on the third day. Now, you say, well, there's other people who came out of the grave. Well, you're right. Eight to be specific between the Old and New Testaments. Most of us at least know Lazarus, probably the most famous resurrection, because he had been dead for four days. Remember, Jesus went to his home, and Mary and Martha, his two sisters, were in tears and weeping. They said, Lord, if you'd been here four days ago, you could have healed our brother. Now he's dead. Let's go to the graveyard. They went. Jesus said, open up the tomb. It was the fourth day. By then, the corpse was stinking. Jews never have embalmed, never in their history, not even to this day, at least in Israel. Lazarus stunk at that point. They said, Lord, he stinketh, the King James says. (laughs) Open it up. Lazarus, come out. And this man who had been dead for four days came back to life. But he was not resurrected. He was raised. And there's a difference in the Bible. Eight people are raised to life like Lazarus, only to die again. And so Lazarus is buried again in some tomb over there in Israel, but Jesus was the first one ever to be resurrected, to come out of the grave in a resurrection body, never ever to die again. And the Bible says that was a declaration, that was an announcement that he was not just a man, but that Jesus is Lord. And so Jesus can make this claim, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Now, obviously, it's articular here. If he had said, I am a way, then you could say there are many ways. But Peter said in Acts 4, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Now, listen, Jesus is either the only way or he's no way at all. For him to claim to be the only way to God, if he was not, then he was a liar or he was deceived and therefore a sinner. He's not saying I'm a good way to God. He's not saying I'm the best way to God. He is saying I am the only way to God. He's not saying your good works, your confirmation, your church membership, your baptism, 
your golden rule is the way to God. He's saying, I'm the way to the Father. No one can come to the Father except by me. And so we see here a picture of what Jesus accomplished for us. On one side, again, we have holy God. On the other side, sinful man. And Christ built the bridge between him and us. On the cross, Jesus shouted, it is finished. It's one word in the Greek language. Jesus shouted to Telestai in 1961 there in the city of Jerusalem, just outside the old city. They found a first century tax collector's office. They found these ancient tax receipts that went back to the time when Jesus walked on the earth. And on it were lists of names. And next to every name, you can see it in the Rockefeller Museum in Israel. Next to every name, the person who paid their tax, they wrote the word tetelestai. It was a financial term in the first century. You could paraphrase it, paid in full. Jesus is saying, your debt for sin has been finished. It's been entirely satisfied. It has been paid in full. How? Through a substitute. And this is why the Bible affirms in the book of Galatians, for if we could be saved by keeping the law, that's what most people think. You're saved by the good things you do. You're saved by obeying the commandments of God. If we could be saved by keeping the law, then there is no need for Christ to die. Now, think your way through this. If you could get into heaven by being good, Jesus never would have had to have died. The most he would have had to have done was come to earth, taught us how to live. He could have skipped the crucifixion and ascended right into heaven. But the prophets wrote, when Messiah came, he's coming to die. Jesus said, for this purpose, I've come into the world. I'm going to Jerusalem. They're going to crucify me. And of course... He himself said, no one will take my life from me. I will give it. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it back up. And you see this authority even in the way in which they arrested him. Mark's gospel said a multitude of men came to arrest him. Matthew's gospel said a great multitude came to arrest him. John's gospel said a Roman battalion came to arrest him. A Roman battalion could be 600 or 1,000 men. How big was this one? He said a Roman battalion led by a cohort, a chiliarchus in Greek. It gives us our English word chiliism. A leader of 1,000 men came to arrest him, and that didn't include the temple police and all the religious hoi polloi that came with them. And of course, in those days when you greeted someone... You didn't greet them with a handshake, but like in many nations of the world, you gave them a kiss on the cheek. And so Judas identified him to the commander because the commander didn't know which one Jesus was. And then if you remember, Jesus turned to the commander and he said, whom do you seek? And he said, Jesus the Nazarene. And Jesus simply said, Yahweh. On one occasion, Moses was in the wilderness and he's herding sheep and There's a miracle bush and that the bush is on fire, but the bush isn't consumed by the fire. And as he approaches that bush, God himself speaks from it. And he said, Moses, take off your shoes. You're on holy ground. And they have this conversation. And at one point, Moses says, God, the Hebrew people will want to know what your name is. What should I tell them? You tell them my name is I am. You tell them, I am whom I am is sending you. Not I was, not I will be, but the one true eternal God. Jesus turned to the commander, whom do you seek? Jesus and Nazarene, I am. And when he said it, the Bible says they all, a thousand plus people fell on their backs. In fact, it's used outside of the New Testament in Koine Greek of a wrestling term of someone who's pinned to the ground. Now, Jesus doesn't say, well, we'll leave those fellows there and we'll just go. 
No, he allows them to get back on their feet, and he asks them a second time, who do you want? Well, we came for you. He said, you can take me, but you cannot touch any of these men. The scripture records he loved his own to the end. Peter, earlier that night, boasted. He said, Lord, I don't know about the rest of these fellows, but if I have to die for you, I will. And so with a surge of boldness, really seeing that Jesus was the one in authority, if you remember, he took out a sword, went after a fellow, cut off Malchus's ear. Jesus rebuked him and said, and after he healed the ear, and he said, I don't need your help. I have legions of angels. In one Old Testament text, just one angel wipes out 185,000 Assyrians, enemies of the Hebrew people. But he doesn't call down a single angel. Jesus, in fulfillment of prophecy, he would be pierced through for our iniquity. He let those men take him and nail him to that cross because the Bible says the life is in the blood. And so without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. Why? The wages of sin is death. You lose enough blood, you're dead. And so all the way through the Old Testament, through the Tanakh, there are rivers of blood that flow because God is shouting a message that sin deserves death. But Jesus became the substitute and he shed his sinless blood for you and for me so that we could have forgiveness. And God put his stamp of approval when he raised him from the dead. And so God makes us a promise here in 2 Corinthians 5. Here's a verse. We're coming in our Wednesday night series before too long, and I'm going to give you a list of 100 of the most important verses every Christian should memorize. This is on the list. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Now, if you read the context, the he's and the him's are really clear. The Father made him, the Lord Jesus, who had never sinned, who is sinless, to be sin on our behalf. On the cross, God took the sin of all time. Hebrews says that once for all time, Christ, Messiah, died for our sin. How were people in the Old Testament saved? By human effort, by good deeds, absolutely not. God gives the first promise of a Messiah in Genesis 3. He affirmed the principle that blood must be shed, and that's why he received Abel's sacrifice and rejected Cain's. And so all the way through the Old Testament, God predicts he's going to send a Messiah, and he unfolds book after book, and he gives progressively more and more truth about the coming of Messiah. And so people who lived before Christ were saved by Christ. You won't meet anyone in heaven who is there except by the Lord Jesus and his shed blood. They were looking forward to God's provision. Now God has fully revealed it. He has overlooked the times of ignorance, Paul says, and he's declaring to all men everywhere that they should repent. Why? Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world through Jesus Christ. We look back at what he has done. Once for all time, Peter said he bore our sin in his own body on the cross. He made him who had never sinned to be sin. Why? So that we could become, that word become is important, because it indicates a change, that we could become the righteousness of God, the perfection, the holiness of God. That's what you need if you're going to go to heaven and stand in God's holy presence. The righteousness of God in him. If this Bible is him, Jesus, and this booklet is me, if I am in him, then God sees me through Christ's righteousness. Here's the problem. We reach a point of accountability. Little babies who die don't go to hell. The Bible teaches that in an unaccountable state, God lets them go to heaven. But there comes a point of accountability in your life. 
And from that moment on, God sees you as outside of the Messiah, stained, guilty. And if you die in that unfallen state, you will become forever separated. But you'll have no excuse because the God who set the penalty paid the penalty. And so if you receive the Lord Jesus, and we've not defined how, He'll put you in Christ. That's why in the New Testament, every single person is called a saint. You're looking at St. Brogy this morning. Now, I grew up in a church where just a certain group of people were called saints. In the New Testament, every single born-again person who has received the, the Lord Jesus has been credited with his righteousness. Even the newest Christian is called a saint. And so in many New Testament books, the greeting opens to the saints, say, at Corinth and so on. You say, well, how do I know if I'm in Christ or outside of Christ? Well, your, your mouth speaks what's in your heart. That's what Jesus said. Sometimes I'll ask a person, hey, why should God let you into heaven? Sometimes they'll say, I honestly don't know. I, I don't know on what basis God would let a person into heaven. I've had people come to meet the pastor, and they'll say, that's why I came tonight, because I don't really know. I don't chide anyone for not knowing, because we're all born in ignorance. None of us know just because we know. No, you have to hear the plan of salvation. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord, speaking of Jesus, will be saved. But how shall they call upon him in whom they have not heard? And how will they hear unless someone goes and tells them? So if you don't know, the Bible would say you're still lost. You're not a Christian. It doesn't matter if you have attended a Christian church or been baptized. You're not a true Christian according to the Bible's definition. Some people, maybe some of you listening to me this morning, why should God let you in heaven? And you gave an answer of good works. Well, I've done this. I haven't done that. If you were to take your answer and write it into a spiritual equation, you're basically saying, I hope my good works will equal salvation. But the Bible would say, no, that answer won't make it either. We just read, if you could be saved, if righteousness comes through your obedience to the law, then Christ died for no purpose at all. Now, if you're more religious, you might say, well, I believe in God. And I'm living a certain kind of life. It might like, look like this, this third equation. Some people think, well, I believe in God, or I, they might even say, I believe in Jesus. And I'm doing certain good works. And I hope that will secure me salvation. A few days ago, we were in a restaurant, and fish restaurant in North Carolina, and I noticed the ichthus up on the uh, board, and, and I ended up speaking with the owner, and turns out he was a believer, and the girl behind the counter is just one of those moments, nobody in the restaurant. It was all takeout, understand, but nobody was there, nobody behind me. So I asked her, how sure are you if you were to die, you'd go to heaven? She said, I'm 50%. Why should God let you in heaven? She said, well, I was raised in the church, so I know Jesus is the Son of God, and I'm trying to live a good life. And she kind of enumerated on that a little bit. See, that was her answer. By the way, this was my answer for many years. I would not have denied that Jesus was God the Son, that he died on a cross when he was raised from the dead. I just didn't think that was enough. So I always added good works, and so in the back of my mind, I was never sure. In fact, in the church I was raised in, they said it's a sin to say you knew you were sure. They call it, it's classified, it's called the sin of presumption. But the Bible says you can know that you have eternal life. Not hope, wonder, think you can know that you have eternal life. But you could never know if good works in any way, shape, or form were based on good deeds, because you would never know until you died whether you did enough good deeds. 
No, the only answer we'll make it is the fourth equation here. Your faith in Christ alone, and by faith in Christ, they're not talking about trusting God for the next meal, to keep you safe, to pay the bills. Those are daily bread expressions of faith. God is asking you to put your faith in what Christ did on the cross, that he died, was buried, and was raised, what the Bible calls the gospel, the power of God to save you. When you come to the point in your life and you put your faith in Christ alone, he gives you salvation and good works follow. You see, there has to be a point in your life where you say, I'm bankrupt. There's nothing I've ever done that will even help get me into heaven. What you are saying about yourself is you're a sinner. You know who gave Jesus the hardest time? It was the religious people. To a group of religious men one day, he said, the prostitutes and the tax collectors who ripped folks off, they're more likely to get into heaven than you are. I'm sure that was a shock. I mean, he said this to men who three different times every day went to the temple to pray for an hour. They fasted one day out of seven. They gave a tenth of all that they had. And Jesus said the prostitute's more likely to go to heaven. In what sense? And that you didn't have to convince the prostitute that she was a sinner. She knew she was morally bankrupt. That unless God could rescue her, she didn't stand a ghost of a chance. That's why he said it's not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I didn't come to save the righteous. I came to call sinners to repentance. So when we come to the point where we say, God, my sin separates me, it's worthy of death, it needs to be forgiven and changed, and I'm going to put my faith, my trust in the Lord Jesus, and at that moment, he puts you in Christ, and at that same moment, the Holy Spirit is put inside of you. Listen, the Holy Spirit can't come live inside of you when you're still stained by your sin, but when you're covered in Christ's righteousness, he comes to live inside of you, and Jesus called this being born again. Have you been born again? Jesus said you must be born again to enter heaven. And it cannot happen until you receive Christ. But listen, when you are born again, everything changes. If anyone is in Christ, the Bible says he's a new person. His old life has passed away and everything has become new. A friend wrote me yesterday from Italy and he said, I found a sense of inner peace by looking at this beautiful scene. Well, it's wonderful to look at God's creation, and I don't dismiss that. But listen, those things will never bring lasting peace. Until you have peace with God, you'll never experience the peace of God. And until you're born from above, there'll always be that gnawing on the inside, something's missing. And you can try to achieve satisfaction and happiness through the things you acquire, through the relationships that you build, through the works that you do, but it will never meet it. Augustine famously said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee, O God. Pascal, the famous philosopher and scientist said, there's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man that can't be filled by any created thing, but only by God the Creator made known in Jesus Christ. Have you come to know Jesus as your Savior? Listen, if you said you're 100% and your answer was because of nothing I've done, but I've received Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior, and He's changed me. He's made me a new person. And so when you're made new, you do good works, not to earn your way to heaven, but because you're going to heaven. Listen, one of the biggest rip-offs, and it's not a rip-off on God's side, it's on man's side, is all these people who know the plan of salvation, but who have never met the man of salvation. 
They know the facts. Listen, everything I've said today, the devil knows, but they've never met Christ. It'd be like this. If the police came in here right now and arrested me, and you read in tomorrow's newspaper, I was arrested for murder and sentenced to the electric chair, you'd be in shock. Well, I have a brother who finds out I'm going to die in the electric chair. He doesn't want me to die there because he loves me. In fact, he loves me so passionately, he offers to die there instead of me. Now he has the judge's attention, and the judge ponders it, but he says, no, it's not costly enough. But he says, hey, is that your only son next to you? Yes, sir. Well, if he would be willing to get in the chair, and if you together with him would be willing to put on those electrodes and pull the switch, we'll set him free. Well, the thought kind of tears his heart in two, because while he loves me, he passionately loves his only son. But his only son says, Daddy, let's do it. He gets in the chair. My brother hooks on the electrodes, pulls the switch. He watches him die. The prison doors are opened, and you can't believe I'm alive, much less out. Hey, Carl, how'd you get out? Oh, I turned over a new leaf in that prison. Started living a better life, going to church, even let the preacher in there baptize me. If I even said, well, my brother gave his son, but I also did certain things. My brother would say, you didn't do anything. I did it all. And the Bible says, for God so loved the world, he did it all. He gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish. God left heaven, became a man, lived a sinless life, and on the cross, the Father pulled the switch on the Son. And that's why the Bible teaches if you bring even one skinny work as a reason as to why God should let you into heaven, He won't. He either saves you all by Himself without any help from you, or He will never, ever save you at all. But listen, it's man's pride, it's man's arrogance, who always wants to bring something they've done, some stitch of righteousness that in God's eyes has been defiled and depraved by sin. So how do you make this real? Let me bring this into a close. Point number five, the Bible teaches we have to personally receive Jesus. John said, as many as received him, Jesus, to them he gave the right to become, because we weren't before, children of God. You are created in the image of God. You become a child of God when you receive him, that is, you believe in his name, all that it stands for. Listen to this next verse. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It, salvation, is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. He couldn't have said it any clearer. It's not of yourself. It's not as a result of works. It is the gift of God. Listen, when someone gives you a gift, you don't try to pay them for it. They did the work for it. That's what makes a gift a gift. The Bible says if it, salvation is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. In other words, what makes the grace of God the grace of God is it's totally unearned and unmerited. The grace of God was God so loved the world. We didn't deserve that. All that God owed us was wrath, but it was in his grace that he sent Jesus to take that wrath. But just because Jesus died for everyone within the sound of my voice, it doesn't automatically mean you're going to heaven. You have to come through faith. You have to believe. And those words, belief and faith, they are almost spelled identically in Greek. What is faith? You say, how do I get this? Well, you admit it's not of yourself. You admit it's not as a result of works. It's a gift. You humbly receive it. You say, well, how do I receive it? By believing, by faith. 
There's a chapter in the New Testament where God gives illustration after illustration as to what faith is. He comes to an old man, Noah, Noah, build a boat. It had never rained before the great flood. Moses wrote, God watered the earth through the mist from below, built-in sprinkler system across the planet. But Noah believed that God was going to flood the world, so he spent with his sons the next 120 years building the ark. Comes another old fellow, Abraham. Abraham, moved to the place I'm going to show you. He was 75, lived in Ur of Chaldea his whole life. Can you imagine what you're doing, Abe? Sarah and I, we're moving. Where are you moving to? Uh, we don't have a clue. We're just moving. Now, Abe, you're getting old. You're moving and you don't know where you're going. That's right. Well, how are you going to know when you get there? Well, the God who created the heavens and the earth, the sun, the moon, and the stars, some of the very things you worship, the creation rather than the one who made it, he appeared to me, and he told me he would show me. And God didn't even give the man directions. He just started walking, and he walks for months and months and months. He walks nearly 1,200 miles, the same distance the Queen of the South walked or traveled to hear the wisdom of Solomon, what Jesus called to the ends of the earth. And months and months later, God then appears to him, and he says, Abraham! This is the place. I've stood at that place. And today we call it Israel. You see, he just believed what God said. So what does God ask you to believe? He said, whoever, anybody, who will call upon the name of Jesus, I will save. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord, it's a quotation from the prophet Joel applied to the Messiah and so quoted in the New Testament in Hebrews 10. You want to ask yourself this morning, where are you? Are you on the left or are you on the right? You see, it's not enough to intellectually know the plan of salvation. In Matthew 7, Jesus addresses these who know the plan of salvation, who can give the right answer as to why God will get them into heaven, but he will say, I never knew you, depart from me. See, some people think because they know the plan of salvation, they know the man of salvation. Some people say, well, I've had this emotional experience. That's kind of what that man was telling me up there in Mount Wachusett. I had this emotional experience. I saw my brother, and he said, it's not your time yet. Not enough to have an emotional experience. There's a decision of the will. It's like getting married. You can know in your mind the plan of salvation. You can know in your mind you want to marry someone. You can have been emotionally stirred by the gospel. You can know emotionally you love this person you want to marry, but you're not married until you say, I will, I do. So we're born on the left side. And once we reach that point of accountability, God calls us a child of wrath. We're under his wrath. It's not like there's this future judgment where God weighs the good and he weighs the bad, and then he decides, no, the one who believes in the Son has life. The one who does not believe... God's wrath is already on him. So how do you move from the left side to the right side? The Bible would say by believing, by faith. You say, well, help me to understand faith. Well, God gave us a whole chapter in the New Testament, illustration after illustration of what faith is. And in every illustration, there's one theme. Faith is simply believing what God promised. Some of you heard there was a meeting here at Community Bible Church at 11 a.m., and you either tuned into the broadcast or you came to one of these campuses or one of these auditoriums in this building. You took someone at their word. Listen, if you can believe a man's word that is often unreliable and sometimes deceptive, 
You ought to be able to believe God's word because he keeps all of his promises. And the Bible says it's impossible for God to lie. The Bible says in Titus 1, God cannot lie. God said in Numbers 21, God is not like a man that he would ever lie. He can only tell the truth. So what did God say? Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord Jesus, I will instantly and eternally save. You have to choose whether or not you'll believe that. And that's a faith issue. Um, Dad brought his two children in the office not long ago, and one was seven, the other was nine, a little boy, seven. This has happened dozens of times. They prayed the prayer with me, but I'm not sure he's saved. That's why I brought him. I said, wonderful. And so I said to the little seven-year-old, I said, if you died right now, are you not sure, pretty sure, or real sure you go to heaven? He said, Pastor Carl, I'm not sure. Now, he wasn't hard-hearted or obstinate towards God. He was just a little boy, probably not even accountable yet. And he just didn't understand the plan of salvation. Now, his sister was a little different. I said, if you died right now, are you not sure, pretty sure, or real sure? She said, Pastor Carl, I'm pretty sure I want to go to heaven. I think I'd go to heaven. I'm pretty sure I'd go to heaven. On and on she went, but I'm not absolutely sure I'd go to heaven. Now, had either of those children truly believed? No, not yet. They hadn't yet taken God at his word. They just didn't understand the nature of faith yet. Faith is taking God at his word. He comes to an old man, Noah. Noah built a ship. It had never rained on the earth before the great flood. God watered the earth with a mist from below. But Noah believed God's word that he was going to flood the world. So he spent 120 years with his family building that ark. He comes to another old guy, Abraham. Abraham moved to the place I'm going to show you. He was 75. He and Sarah had lived in Ur of Chaldea their whole life. Can you imagine what you're doing, Abraham? We're moving. Where are you moving to? We don't have a clue. We're just moving. Hey, Abe, you're getting a little old here. You sure you know what you're doing? Yeah, I know what I'm doing. Well, you're moving and you don't know where you're going. That's right. How are you going to know when you get there? Because the God who created the heavens and the earth and the stars and the moon, the very things that you worship, you are worshiping the created thing rather than the creator who made them. He appeared to me and he promised he would show me. And God didn't even give the man directions. He just started walking. And he walked for months and months and he walked about the same distance that the queen of the south walked to hear the wisdom of Solomon that Jesus used metaphorically to describe to the ends of the earth for months and months and months, nearly 1,200 miles. And then God appeared to him and he said, Abraham, this is the place. And there in Shechem, God appeared. And today we call that place Israel. He just believed what God promised. And that's what God is asking you to do. Because he did what he did, he can promise you what he promises. God will not violate his holiness. He won't violate his righteousness. He won't violate his justice. He shows that he loves you because love and justice and holiness met on the cross because he did what he did. He can say, call on Jesus and I will immediately save you. Now, one way to express that faith is in prayer. And when you pray while the words are important, the attitude of the heart is equally important. Some people have prayed the sinner's prayer and they didn't really understand what they were doing. Listen, you only get saved once. Just like you're only born physically once, you're only born again once. 
And if way back yonder you supposedly made a decision for Christ, but you gave an answer today, well, 50% or an answer with works, or I don't know, whatever happened back there, it wasn't salvation. Understand this. This is important. There's a lot of deceived people. You only get saved once. So understanding in the New Testament precedes genuine conversion. I've shared the gospel with thousands and thousands and thousands of people, one-on-one and in large group contacts. And more than once, I've had someone tell me, well, I prayed that, but I didn't mean it. I remember asking one man, well, what do you mean? Well, my grandma wanted me to pray that prayer, and I just wanted to get her off my case, and so I prayed it for her. That didn't mean anything to God. Or sometimes I'll take a person through the sinner's prayer. I'll say, well, did you really mean what you prayed? Oh, I meant it as much as I can understand my heart. I meant it. Well, are you saved? I don't know. One time a man said to me, I told you I was 50% sure. I think I'm 90% now. Was he saved? No. Why? He did not believe what God promised. Whoever will call upon the name of Jesus will be saved. You see, once we understand the plan of salvation, you don't have to understand everything about the Bible. It's simple enough, the gospel, that a child can get it, but you have to know that you're bankrupt, that your sin condemns you, that it needs to be forgiven, and it's wrong, and it needs to be changed, and only Christ can forgive you and change you. You have to understand that much, that through the death and resurrection of the gospel, God will save you. But then you have to exercise faith. You have to believe. And if you understand that and you don't believe, then you're saying one of two things. You're either saying, God, you can't do it, like you're weak or impotent. And I've had people over the years tell me, well, I don't think God can forgive me. Man said to me, I convinced my girlfriend to murder our baby, to have an abortion. I've had women in my office broken down and in tears over abortions they've had. I had a man in my office, and he said, I've been a bad dude. I said, I know a lot about you, more than you probably realize. What do you mean? I said, you just got out of prison after eight years for manslaughter. He said, I didn't know you knew that. I said, I did. He said, Pastor Carl, it wasn't manslaughter. I had a good lawyer. I planned to murder that man. Can God ever forgive me? Whosoever will may come. It's a trustworthy statement. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Someone said, I was involved in perverted, illicit sexual behavior. A person asked me six months ago, I'm thinking about becoming transgender. Can God ever forgive me? God can forgive anyone. And God can change the adulterer, the drunk addict, the drunk addict, the self-righteous moral person. God can save anyone through Jesus. Today is the day to be saved, the Bible says. When you hear the message, don't harden your heart. In just a moment, this broadcast will be over. We're going to go outside these doors. And if you choose not to believe, the Bible would say you've hardened your heart. And the devil will have a victory. Because tomorrow morning when you wake up, you won't have a softer heart. You'll have a slightly harder heart. And it will be more difficult to respond. And there will come a time when you say, no, 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 no. And God will stop speaking. And you will have said in an eternal no. So I want to give you that opportunity. Bow your heads, close your eyes. 
you're here and you'd like to receive Christ as your Savior and Lord, and I want to give you that opportunity right now. Remember the promise of God, whoever will call upon the name of Jesus will be saved. Would you take God at his word? Would you pray this simple prayer? Dear Jesus, I am a sinner. Tell him, dear Jesus, I am a sinner. I don't deserve to go to heaven. Thank you for coming to earth and for dying on the cross in my place and for taking the punishment that I deserve. As the resurrected Lord, I trust you now to save me. Say it, mean it, believe it. Lord Jesus, save me. And because you have saved me by your grace, I will spend the rest of my life serving you. Amen. Would you look up here? Maybe you prayed that prayer in faith a moment ago and you took God at his word. What does he ask you to do next? He asks you to make it public. Jesus taught, if you won't openly, publicly confess me before men, I'll never confess you before my Father. You say, wait a minute, that sounds like a work. Coming down in front of a Billy Graham crusade or a church, that sounds like a work. No, Jesus taught you're saved by grace alone. But he can make that comparison because he knew that if it was true on the inside, then on the outside you'd be unashamed to confess him as Lord. That's why we're an invitational church. Without apology, we ask people to come and to publicly confess Jesus as Lord. Then God asks you to be baptized. Baptism in the Bible is a symbol. It's like the ring on my finger. This ring is a symbol that God married my wife and I. The ring didn't marry me. God married me. What God has joined, let no man separate. The ring is just a symbol. Listen, to wear a wedding band without being married is an empty symbol. To get baptized without truly, genuinely being saved is an empty symbol. Because baptism, the word baptizo means to immerse. A woman asked in the last service who came down front, well, I was baptized as an infant, but I understand that's not enough. I said, well, it's not because it really wasn't baptism. It was ratizo, it was sprinkling. The word that God uses is to immerse. Why? Because immersion symbolizes the death, burial, and the resurrection. You're saying by symbol, I'm going to heaven. I'm giving Jesus all the honor because he died, was buried, and was raised. The Bible says, believe and then be baptized. Three centuries later, man began to reverse it. We started baptizing babies and later asking them to believe. It's just the opposite in Holy Scripture. Look, water, what must I do to be baptized? You have to first believe Jesus. So it's a decision that you make after you're saved. If anyone ever tells you that baptism helps to save you, they've lied to you. They've misrepresented God's Word. It is a symbol, but it's more than a symbol. It's an act of obedience, something you do as a believer in the Lord Jesus. Now, you're here this morning. Some of you are online. We had over 500 people just on our website. We usually have sometimes twice that on Facebook and YouTube and sermon audio, live streaming with us in 35 states and seven countries in the last service. So I don't know where you are. But if you receive Christ and you're in another place of the world, the first thing you need to do is find a Bible-believing church. And if you need help in that, if I can help you, we'll help you. Just fill out a guest card and we'll do our best to help you to find a church wherever you are on the planet. But if you're here in one of these auditoriums 
or in Grays or Graniteville, and you made an eternal yes to Jesus today, I want to invite you in just a moment to leave your seat and come to this front row. And your coming will be saying, I'm not ashamed of Jesus. And if you haven't had believer's baptism as a saved person, I want to invite you to come. Maybe you've been saved and baptized, but you need a church home. We would ask you to join publicly. Why? Because if you really know Jesus, you're not ashamed of him. I spoke to a 75-year-old man this week, and he said, well, my, my wife said this is kind of a private thing. And I said to him, it is private in that no one can make the decision to receive Jesus but you alone in your heart. But once you make that private decision, Jesus said it will become public. Matt's going to lead us in a hymn. And if you need to make a decision to come confess Jesus for the first time as Lord, to be baptized, to join this church, here's your opportunity. Leave your seat, whatever auditorium you're in, and you come, Matt, lead us. Would you step out now and come?